0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is our interview of the day. It usually would always be that case, but really none more than this day after what we saw in Brussels at NATO, at Checkers with Prime Minister May, and in Helsinki as well. We do this with a gentleman who did a tour of duty on one platform in Haiti, Bosnia, and the Persian Gulf, out in the real trenches of the projection of her U.S. Navy, and that is Admiral Stravitis of the Fletcher School. Tufts University. Admiral, your Twitter feed I featured this morning, it is the most scathing feed I have ever, ever seen in the history of what Twitter uh, wrought. I like and respect Ambassador Dan Coates. Uh, I am not sure how he goes to work tomorrow. President Trump has lost his grip on reality. And by the way, Mr. Putin offering to help find the culprits in our election is like Edward Snowden, etc. And then you finish up on a classy Stravitas note by saying that the president's decision not to throw out the first pitch at tonight's baseball all-star game in D.C. now seems brilliant. Admiral, this is the number one question I've gotten on this trip. When do people start resigning and why don't they resign? Discuss. I'll start with uh,
1: Dan Coats. Uh, As I said in my uh, tweet, I like Dan Coats. I respect him. Former ambassador to Germany, former senator, uh, just a terrific person by every regard. Um, He ought to resign uh, and he ought to kind of lead the charge on resignations. I, I just think that to watch your boss, your immediate boss, and he goes into the White House almost every day to brief the president on intelligence to watch your Boss stand next to the president of Russia, an avowed bitter hater of the United States of America, and uh, throw the entire intelligence community under the bus. Right. Uh, screams for a resignation. So I think I think it's kind of got to start there because I don't think the Congress can really do much, Tom.
0: You are uh, very close, particularly with General Mattis and your wonderful book on leadership, which was my book of the year a few years ago. Admiral Stavridis, are General Mattis and General Kelly held to a different standard of resignation? Can they not resign because they serve the nation in the military?
1: I think two different cases, Tom. Um, First of all, they can resign. uh, But I think both of them have a lifetime of standing up in the fire and continuing on. And I think both of them, probably part of them wants to do that. I think for General Kelly in the White House, it's probably about time for my good friend John Kelly to wrap it up. Uh, In terms of General Mattis, I hope he stays, and I think he should stay. He's in a different category. He's not part of the intelligence community per se. uh, And his role is just so vital that I hope he stays. And I, I think General Kelly has got to be pondering his options today.
2: Admiral Stavridis, I'm wondering if you could comment on the notion that perhaps Donald Trump sees something that other people don't see and that his negotiating style will yield results that we have yet to expect.
1: I think we have to uh, examine that possibility, but here 's how I would approach Russia. We should confront them where we must, and that is on things like intrusions in our elections, support for a war criminal like Assad, invading Ukraine and annexing Crimea. We have to confront Russia on that but We should cooperate where we can. Can we work together on counter-narcotics, on counter-piracy, on counter-cyber, on cooperation in the Arctic, on arms control? I think there are zones of cooperation, but to approach Vladimir Putin, as the president did yesterday, essentially as a supplicant, um, undoes any ability to confront him on the vital issues. So I think we need both, and I don't think that the negotiating style being displayed with Vladimir Putin gets us anywhere because Putin will take everything you put on the table, put it in his pocket, and then ask for more.
2: But at the same time, the United States is outspending every country in the world on its defense budget, and President Trump has been vociferous in his support of the defense establishment pushing for more spending.
1: I think that he is in the right place, President Trump. In looking for modest increases in the defense budget. We don't need to uh, double our defense budget or increase it by even 10%, but he's looked for modest increases in single digits, low single digits, that I think are appropriate to address mm-hmm. readiness. The United States has an enormous global uh, sense of what it needs to do in the world, and that requires a pretty big defense budget. But this gets us to another fallacy in the Trump approach, which is throwing the Europeans under the bus right before he throws the intelligence community under the bus. Europeans have the second largest defense budget in the world. If we want relief on our defense budget, we to be encouraging them, not rejecting them, as I see the president doing.
0: Let's continue with Admiral Stravitas, of course, with Tufts University and the Fletcher School. I can't say enough, folks, about the briefings that you can get from the work of James Stravitas. His uh, book, Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans, will make you far smarter about the seas, things we take for granted, that he has lived as well. And my book of the year a few years ago, The Leader's Bookshelf, is a set of writings by military Uh, officers, for the most part, uh, uh, their favorite books, and these are people reading, including General Mattis, I believe, in the book, uh, and General Kelly uh, as well. I can't say enough about the Leader's Bookshelf. You go in, you pick out one, two, three, four books. Mark Twain is in there, among others, Uh, but just uh, a very valuable book to give you perspective in this time of economics, finance, politics, and, of course, our most interesting international relations. Right now, Ian Whitaker joins us from Libra in London as we look at the end of Netflix as we know it. Ian, I just did a two-standard deviation chart. Netflix is such a juggernaut, it's not even down to resistance. It's amazing. It's pulled back 12% this morning, and it's still within trend. Has the back been broken of Netflix's unreal bull market? Is this just a quick Blip along the road, or is there something different this time?
3: I think what we'll have to see is what are the results that come out from the following quarters. I mean, it's always dangerous taking one quarter's uh, results and then extrapolating them across. Having said that, I think there will be some particular points of concern for people in terms of the longer term story. Bear in mind, given the market cap of this stock, which is still after today's fall over $150 billion. You really need some punchy assumptions, both in terms of subscriber growth and also, as well, ARPU growth moving forwards to justify that valuation. Now, what I think people will be particularly concerned about is the quarter subscriber missed, you know, which is not great. Then the Q3 subscriber prediction doesn't look particularly fantastic either. But going back to this point before, it's the the, the argument that Netflix has been impacted by the fact of a lack of new shows. What's particularly worrying about that is it suggests they have to continually invest in very expensive, very glossy drama, which, quite frankly, nobody knows whether will be a success until it's shown, in order to keep that subscriber momentum growing. The rest of the the package just doesn't seem good enough to actually get the subscriber momentum that the analysts are expecting out there on the street. So, as I said, I, I think one quarter's numbers Let's not put it into a trend. If this was to continue for the next sort of two quarters or so, I think people would be very worried.
4: So let's talk about a couple of things and the first point you've made is the is the quarterly miss. And I want to talk about the communication there, Ian. We didn't just miss, we missed by a million subscribers. Um when you miss yeah. that big, typically something's gone wrong with communication. Um both from the company towards the street and just the general visibility internally. How have they got it this wrong, Ian?
3: Well, I think they they probably, if you're a company doing your forecast, what you'll obviously look you you look at the trends that have been going on, both in terms of of Q on Q and then year on year, and you'll take a view on that. You'll say you've advanced into more markets than you were in previously. That essentially you've become a lot more, you've got more more products, and therefore that should drive growth as well. I think therefore, sort of, of, a couple of things sort of would extrapolate from that. One, either the growth from their new markets hasn't been as good as they expected, or they've seen more rapid a slowdown coming through in their existing markets, both of which is obviously sort of of a worrying trend. They might argue that the World Cup has had an effect in the sense that the World Cup probably was a much better received competition than many would have expected at the start of the tournament. And I think that will probably be their main line of defence here. Having said that, so uh, they should have actually... As you said, to get a million subscriber miss, yeah. it's okay if, let's say, it was 200, 300,000, you could probably explain it away by the effect of the World Cup. Missing by so much, because yeah, that's something like a, a 16, 17% miss against uh, their estimates. I mean, that does feel as though something sort of a, a bit more drastic has gone wrong.
4: Yeah, trying to blame the World Cup for a couple of weeks in June for a three-month quarter for a one-million sub miss seems like a stretch to me, Ian. Oh no, it doesn't to yeah. me um, at all. This, this, yeah. Ian, I love br- I, Ian. I love
0: bringing this up because John wants to be World Cup free, and I just want yeah. to keep it going. We're, as best we're, this as this I is can. just
4: slowly going to drain yeah. out the program over the next couple of days. Um, Ian, I want to pick up on a point that the CFO David Wells made um yesterday. Taking on debt is the most effective. Capital source. How much debt does this company t- need to take on now to fund its growth in the future? To fund that content.
3: Well, it, it's very interesting if you if you look in terms of the numbers here, in terms of the the cash burn on Netflix. The the consensus cash burn is around three billion dollars, uh, or over three billion dollars for this year, and it rapidly comes down. But you're still looking at a company where you know, it doesn't almost. Analyst forecast. It doesn't get cash flow positive until 2021. I think it all boils down to the point that made before. If their subscriber growth is predicated on having to get a consistent stream
0: yeah. of high
3: margin show uh, of high sort of, of cost shows yeah. to keep those subscriber numbers yeah. in, you, your cash flow is probably going to be right. worse than what people expect. Well, they That's just gotta- the general yeah. the history.
0: Well, Ian, we got to leave it. We got to leave it there. What I would say is they just need more of the Queen. I mean, Claire Foy's just got to get to work to ballot Netflix.
2: Well, President Trump's uh, proposed new tariffs on $200 billion worth of imported goods from China, they escalate the U.S.-China trade conflict and intensify the debate about the economic and political implications of trade negotiations. But do they obscure the investment opportunities and reality? Here to tell us more is our own Matt Winkler, Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief Emeritus Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. I want you to just describe a little bit about what you were trying to do in your latest column to kind of peel back the rhetoric and explore exactly what is going on in the world economy. It is, in a way, much more domestic, particularly when it comes to a place like China.
5: Yes, Pim. Thank you uh, for that introduction. Uh, Always good to be with you. We're besieged, if you will, by headlines like Trump tariff barrage pushes China feud to point of no return. That's a good one. China vows retaliation with you know $200 billion of uh, trade threat. The reality is if we do something we like to do at Bloomberg, which is follow the money, is what emerging market funds are doing best. And if emerging markets are in peril, which everybody from BlackRock to uh, Carmen Reinhardt at Harvard has been saying they are, what are these emerging market funds doing? And in fact, the best of them are investing in China. They're increasing their holdings in China. And the reason for that is that the Chinese economy, which is now the second largest in the world after the U.S., is looking more and more like the U.S. in the sense that it's domestic demand that's driving the performance of uh, corporate China. And corporate China that is driven by domestic demand is doing very well. And some of these funds, for example, have uh, doubled their holdings in the past three years, uh, going from say 16% China to almost 30%. And on top of that, they've been reaping 15% annual returns, the best of them. So that's all pretty good in the face of uh, all the uh, sound bites and um, the rhetoric of trade wars.
2: Let me just push you a little bit because one of the funds that you talk about in the piece is the American Century Emerging Markets Fund. It is down about seven and a quarter percent so far this year. Does that underscore that this is a long-term view, or is there something else at work?
5: It absolutely does underscore that's a long-term view. And if you were to uh, speak with as we did to Patricia Riberio, who is the uh, woman who manages the American Century Emerging Markets Fund. She will tell you that, um, you know, she does not really pay much attention or make decisions based on day-to-day events. What she does is follow the performance of the companies there. And uh, it's increasingly difficult because finding the signal in all this noise is probably uh, more rigorous than than it otherwise would be because there's so much noise. But she would tell you that uh, the worst thing to do is to pay attention to the noise.
2: Tom, when I know I you're there, this, there Matt, listening.
0: No, but yeah, I look at this, and what so the advantage here, uh, uh, folks, is that Matt Winkler works with Shinpei, and they really go through the data on this. Are these? Is this EM fund outperformance? Because they make more money when things are good, or is it they lose less money when things are bad?
5: So, I'm not sure it's it's I'm not sure it's either of those things, Tom. It's more about uh, companies that are uh, poised for growth in China because the economy has so become so dynamic, and because domestic consumption is such a bigger driver than it was ten years ago. We, you know, we live uh, at a time where a lot of politicians, <laughs> one in particular, who thinks that uh, the equation is all about manufacturing and exports uh, from low-cost labor, when in fact, uh, <clears throat> if you look at China, the biggest uh, and longest-term uh, and most dynamic development is that companies there are catering increasingly to domestic demand, which has nothing to do with you know, who can make uh, the most goods at the lowest cost.
0: Within emerging markets, and as you say, it's highly idiosyncratic, and back to stock selection, what did you learn about active funds versus passive funds?
5: Well, here is an example where uh, the active uh, actually is um, perhaps much more thoughtful than the most advanced algorithm. Uh, in the case of a passive fund, because the active manager is specifically looking at how the economy is changing in China and um, how China is becoming much more like the U.S., uh, at least in this context of the stock market. And so that uh, thinking is probably ahead of where the passive investor is.
2: Well, Matt, if you just look at the actions that the Chinese government has taken, they're trying to boost consumer confidence, right?
5: Absolutely. And, you know, that's a very important point. And she and, uh, uh, would, uh, in American Century, be the first to say, look, um, you have to pay attention to what the Chinese government does and what it's uh, focused on. Because if you do, you are going to benefit because they are, uh, without a doubt, the invisible hand. Uh, you know, this is a different uh, kind of economy. It's not capitalism as we know it in the U.S. of A. There, there is uh, clearly uh, a force, and that is the government. And so, these managers are paying very much attention to uh, the government as it attempts to pick winners um, along the way.
2: Is it possible that all of this confrontation, this verbal confrontation and rhetoric over trade? Actually, will embolden the Chinese government to keep things like the, uh, domestic interest rates low, uh, keep money and credit flowing, uh, also uh, spur that domestic demand, which they were already looking to do in the first place.
5: So, first of all, I'm totally unqualified to answer that question. So, I'm not going to. Um, I can say that um, you know where things have benefited the economy, which is consumer discretionary. There's no question that the government will do everything it can to increase it up to the point where it is um, treacherous for uh, economic policy. Obviously, uh, it doesn't want to see lending get so out of control that bubbles are created and and uh, it leads to uh, other worse things. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that with tr- trade wars are bad, and there's no question that that the Chinese government and and uh, just about every other government right now, except maybe the us thinks this is not a good thing for the world and the global economy. That much we do know.
2: Thank you very much. Matt Winkler, he is uh, Bloomberg Editor in Chief Emeritus. Uh, the uh, column uh, on Bloomberg Opinion, uh, definitely worth uh, checking out, it's entitled These Investors Aren't Spooked by Trade Wars. Emerging Markets Funds Keep Increasing Their Exposure to China and They're Doing Just Fine.
0: Manafort is in jail. Stephanie Baker is not. She's with us right now on our set in London. Let's go to just one of the 47 fallouts that we've seen here in the last 27, uh, 24 hours off of this. I watched Air Force One take off last night from the Helsinki tarmac. It's amazing. I mean, what Donald Trump was going back to. Let's look at the heat. This obtain a Milbank, fair and balanced in the Washington Post. Mr. Milbank really goes after the president, as you would expect as well. President Trump has repeatedly informed us that we are, quote, a stupid country. He is a, quote, very stable genius among the many stupid things Trump has identified to White House staffers, the FBI, the National Football League, Democrats, the filibuster, and journalists except Stephanie Baker. Stupid, stupid, stupid. As a wise man once said, stupid is as stupid uh, does. Milbank, among others, fired up as well. What will be the ramifications, and is, is it even feasible we could get Senate censure?
6: You know, uh I was somewhat heartened to see some Republicans come out and criticize him. But by and large, the criticism was quite measured. I thought the most notable critique came from Newt Gingrich, who said, you know, Trump Trump defender, former GOP right. leader of the House said it's the most mysterious mis- most serious mistake of his presidency mm-hmm. and he must immediately correct it. 2 hours later he tweets out but Trump has been cutting re- regulations to help US business. So right. that kind of encaps- encapsulates the dilemma and the attitude of Republicans con- in Congress. Is this going to be more of a Charlottesville moment where people are outraged and that outrage passes quickly and we get back to status quo? Or do they actually take action? I'm not seeing any indication that any real action will be taken. What is
0: fascinating about this, and I've seen this every moment on my trip, people come up to me and they say, what are the Republicans doing? And yet I remember Watergate, they really didn't do much right up until the end of the moment. Is that what you expect? is this will just drag on and drag on. I mean, if this can't do it, what what can change this dialogue for Trump and non-Trump supporters?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that you've seen calls for um, members of his administration to step down and protest. Um, you know, but it remains to be seen. Do the, What do you do in this situation? Yeah. I think many people have felt uh, reassured by the presence of people like Jim Mattis, uh, perhaps being a moderating force, but those... Those people aren't actually pulling him back and uh, restraining him. And you do have to ask the question, why didn't they make sure that there was someone else in the room during that two hour meeting with Trump and Putin? We will never know what really happened during those two hours.
5: Yeah. And I mean, the
2: question is, would it have even made any difference? But what could actually happen to the president
6: himself beyond how he's impacted in the midterms from this, if at all? Well, I think his attempts to change the conversation with the Russia investigation, this has dealt a serious setback to that effort. And um, I think his resistance to sitting down for an interview uh, with Robert Mueller, I think that has uh, been undermined by this. And I think uh, any attempts by uh, Trump to shut down the Mueller investigation, I think, will be challenged by Congress. I've got to ask
0: you with your expertise, Mr. Manafort, uh, he's in jail, which is a shocking thing in itself. Does that change him that he's sitting in jail?
6: Well, we had uh, reports overnight that the uh, his trial in Virginia had been delayed for a week, which is unusual, um, and there has been some speculation that he may be negotiating a plea deal. We don't know if that's the case, yeah, but that might be okay. that might be one okay. of the reasons for it. We don't know.
0: Okay. Stephanie, thank you so much. Stephanie Baker with us, of course, uh, Bloomberg senior uh, writer with really expertise on Cyprus and banking here uh, in Europe, where the money uh, flows.